if you have albino chickens, there may be a negotiation available. Hello, everyone, and welcome. We are Irenacast. I'm Jeff. I am Alan. I'm Bonnie. I'm Casey. This is Rajiv. On the first and third Tuesday of every month, we bring to you our perspectives on theology and culture from a post-evangelical lens. Thank you for joining us for another conversation to provoke your progressive Christian imagination. This week, this is going to be a fun one. We're going to be talking about women in leadership, specifically church leadership. And then we're going to finish with a brand new segment called Craigslist Price is Right. So, Bonnie, you've kind of come up with the, the guiding light for this particular conversation. Some would argue the show, Casey. And um, we're going <laughs> to we're going to we're going to we're going to move forward. So uh, I, I, we have right down here a great opening question that I think would be a good way to kind of center us all in this particular issue. Um, so so Bonnie, lead us, yeah. lead us in this women on leadership conversation Go ahead. I'm I'm done. Okay. Yeah. Thanks, Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Let, to just open up the conversation, like, what have your experiences been with women and church leadership? Some of the best bosses I've had have been female pastors. I'll just start there. Right? They are more collaborative. One of the things that I noticed uh, going from having a male boss to a female boss was when we would do events, we would all be there together until the end cleaning uh, when, sh- when she was there. But when it was the male boss, my male superior, he was always out of there right after. That was profound. Just, you know, within a six month time period, seeing that transition was like, this is, this makes more sense to me, quite frankly. <laughs> yeah. Collaborative and helpful and willing to work. We weren't there to stroke people's egos. That's been my experience. I, I would say mine is just woefully recent in the sense that in the tradition I grew up in, you could not be clergy or a quote unquote legitimate leader if you were a woman. And in the last five years or so, I've got the pleasure of learning from profound and wonderful leaders in the church who are women. But in my kind of context growing up, there was this understanding that like you kind of did the seen and not heard thing in church. Like I have a, I have a vivid memory of seeing a woman being baptized and you're supposed to give your testimony in kind of the non-denominational Baptist background I came from. You're supposed to like tell your big salvation story or if it's a small one, that's fine too or whatever. And uh, she wrote out this really compelling one, her, her life story, but had someone else read it because she didn't want to speak in front of the church, even though she was eloquent, just because she didn't want to like transgress whatever boundaries. And I also knew as like a youth group kid that if a woman ever stood up to speak at like a camp or something, we were supposed to walk out. That's how ingrained in us knowing our, our place. Like, yeah. So there, there, and, and you know what? There's a lot of pain in that. I had, I had friends. <laughs> I don't want to start the episode just on that, but honestly, when I, we, talk about this. That's all I have. I got, that's what I have in my, my soul and psyche. By far the most intelligent people in my graduating class were these handful of, of women in high school, but like they, they, they talk to the youth pastor and they're like, Hey, I don't get this thing about women in leadership. Like what about women disqualifies them from doing this good work that you're talking about? And the answer they were given was 
just be thankful you don't have to be thankful you don't have to lead and in my mind i'm looking at these amazing people who are talented as hell and like looking at myself looking at my position as someone who's about ready to go to bible college and like go through the process and being like there's something wrong <laughs> about all of this and uh it's it's been a long journey but i'm going to echo what casey said i've worked with a lot of men in church and i have i have colleagues who are women and the collaborative thing is very true. Not that all women are the same. I mean, every single woman is different, right? And every every man is different. But there definitely is the sense that, like, at least the people I've worked with, they've had to put up with more shit than the men I've been in connection with. You know, like they're they're tested in a way I think that a lot of men in ministry are not. You can get pretty far as a mediocre dude <laughs> in church ministry. Just want to say that. But the women who are in there, they almost have to be like amazing to even just get past the hurdles that are there even in progressive circles so i don't know if that sounds weird but that's just kind of the stuff that comes up for me yeah i think there's so much that that resonates uh i grew up in the seventh adventist church uh the church i grew up in was on the progressive liberal end of adventism so we had women pastors on staff but they weren't ordained you know, the church was very much one that was for women's ordination, Seventh-day Adventism, but it's still, it hasn't happened yet. So it's this weird mixed bag of, like, having this belief, but then not really living into it. And then probably one of the most incredible, and this sounds like pandering, but, you know, when I met Bonnie in college, it's like she had this leadership capability, you know, as a fellow student that was like, whoa, this is kind of off the charts. And then... Really, as far as church setting, working with an ordained women pastor was um, my first experience was with our church in Eugene, Oregon. There were two women pastors on staff, and they were they were incredible. I mean, they held lots of pieces together, and then uh, did an internship with Penny Nixon in in San Mateo, and she's like, you know, she's she's an amazing an amazing minister, an amazing leader, and presence in the world. And echoing what all of you said, one of the things that I've noticed is is women in leadership that I've worked with in the church setting or or anywhere else have this ability to hold everything all at once. Like there's there's like, you know, you walk into a meeting and there's like nothing slipping through the cracks. And I think that comes from, you know, a lot of uh, the way we're formed differently. And then, you know, I, I walk away continually, even even now going, man. How How is it I've never been trained to think that way? Like there's all this stuff that needs to happen to make a community thrive. And, you know, I was only formed and, you know, trained to focus on this finite set of areas. So I've learned a lot about first being able to see all the pieces and then two, as, as, a, as a fellow leader, learning how to pay attention and be attentive, make sure nothing slips through the cracks. Yeah, I think we're we're lucky to be in progressive communities that lift up and, and truly honor women in leadership, but there's still a lot to learn. And uh, women in progressive settings have suffered, continue to, to suffer a lot of uh, diminishment in various strange forms. So I have a couple things going on in my head right now, but before I share my experience, I just want to just, I don't know, point out, can I push back on, 
I wonder if there's danger in uh, gendering, like we should let women be in leadership because these are the characteristics of womanhood. And I'm uncomfortable with that because I, I think that that leans us into maybe, and maybe we'll get into this as we go, but leans us into the progressive part or quote unquote progressive part of this argument is that women are just as capable as men. In fact, they're better because they have these innate qualities of nurturing, of detail orientation and all that kind of stuff. And I'm, I'm uncomfortable with that. What makes you uncomfortable? I don't think that that's necessarily a symptom of this is why women would make better leaders. I think it's a symptom of the system itself and how it trains and puts up this is what the standard of leadership is. And I think that it's more incorporated with our American view of leadership in terms of the a leader has to be strong, make decisive decisions, and it's about the group over this. And I, I, I'm uncomfortable gendering that. And I, and I understand why we do, because obviously leadership has been associated with men. And, and the reason I'm uncomfortable with that, honestly, is personal, because I feel like I've always, quote unquote, led like a woman in, the, in terms of those are the qualities that I've always admired. Every, every church that I've ever been in, I've worked closely with the administrator, secretary, whatever you want to call them. And they were amazing. And I learned so much in those settings and I, and I don't think it was indicative of the fact that it was a woman. I think it was indicative of the fact of the job and that, and that the church wouldn't think of hiring a man for that particular role. When we have this conversation about women and leadership, I think sometimes we can slip into this definition of an assumed definition of what leadership is. And, uh, or a, what a woman means. Right. Like I feel, I feel like I feel some of that same kind of hesitancy. On the one hand, I know that it's a cultural thing, right? What a man is, what a woman is, is a culturally defined thing in our society that we're dealing with and that our, that our communities have to deal with. But every day that goes by, I feel closer to generation Z or whatever, whoever comes next, who's like destroying gender norms. I like that's, that's where I feel like I'm at is that to say this is what a woman is, is like there is no a woman floating out there like concept. There's just, there's women and there's no a man, there's men, there's like, and people in between and people of like all different um, expressions. And that's been evolving for millions of years. You know, that's not like a set form in, in the sky somewhere that like we conform to. So I, I have some of that underlying background anxiety over conversations like this because it feels like stepping further back in the onion. Like we've been, we've been peeling the onion, getting to the good stuff. And then now we're like, we have to go back and address like, I don't know how to explain it, but this is a very important conversation and I don't want to derail it. It just for some of the younger folks, I think even the, the, the question of should women be in leadership sounds like gibberish. It doesn't even sound like a, I don't know how to explain it. But that's that's where people are headed. Yeah, I, I don't think it sounds like gibberish, Alan. You just described your experience with I, women in leadership. I, I mean, to younger people like who are deconstructing deconstructing gender completely. Even even them. Yeah. Like, how many millions of people go to churches where there's no women pastors? That's true. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. There's that's and, true. And we've yeah we've we've talked about recent conversations in the larger Christian landscape. That's very anti-woman and anti-woman leadership. Yeah. Um, but I, I w- I'd love to hear more from you, Jeff. Like, first of all, like, thank you for thinking of your leadership style in relationship to maybe women leadership, women's leadership styles. 
And I'm curious, like, how was your model of leadership received? Negatively. Okay. Yeah. Without, without a doubt. Like, for instance, uh, there was an interaction in our office where the the administrator, who I was very close with and we worked well together, said something about, you know, what about this, this, this? And then the the male in charge said, oh, I didn't think about that. I'm not a woman. And I'm like, <gasps> and I'm sitting there on the other side, like, apparently I am a woman because I'm the one <laughs> that thought of that and that we had talked about it. And she's the one that addressed it with him because – and this is in a progressive, quote unquote, church, right? So I think that um, a lot of people, a lot of men in leadership wear progressivism as a badge and they have all the right lingo and the right things in terms of that. But the way that they act and blissfully unaware of it because the system has allowed them to be uh, blissfully unaware on how they're no different from them and men like, you know, John MacArthur. And and I've and I've always been the one like details, like I, every position that I've been in, in a church, I have had, with the exception of one, I've had conflict with the senior pastor because I can't shut up. And I'm looking at, like, they're looking at these immediate little things and expecting people to to fawn over their leadership and the success of an event. And I'm always there like, yeah, but it could have been better. Or we're not looking at the bigger picture here. And, uh, oh, people don't think about that. We're not going to worry about that. And it's been, it's been a frustrating existence being in that place. Uh, because, because I was never in a place of authority to where whatever I was saying mattered because I was just a youth pastor or I was just young or I was whatever. And I can't imagine how much more amplified that is for someone who was a, a, a woman or a person of color in that situation that would feel that same way, you know, outside of even that situation. And I, and I'm, I'm saying it was frustrating for me. And I acknowledge that it's probably a million times more frustrating for so many other people, uh, which gives me empathy for that position because it's, it's frustrating to be in. And it's frustrating for me. Like sometimes I wish I could just shut it off. Like I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to worry about that. Or sometimes I wish I just keep your mouth shut. Don't say anything. Don't say anything. But as you all know, who have worked with me for the past year and a half or so, I can't keep my mouth shut. If I don't like something, I'm going to argue it and not argue it necessarily, or sometimes argue it, but like make sure that I'm understood in terms of like, here's the bigger picture. We need to think not just now, but over there. And uh, it's been, it's been a frustrating existence in church settings. Yeah. I, I think, you know, in terms of my experience with women in leadership, I didn't see any. And the ones that I did see were patronized so significantly, like I felt sorry for them. And so ever thinking about aspiring to leadership in a church just felt impossible. It felt impossible as a, as a girl and as a young woman growing up. Can um, I ask what I think- made it feel possible? Because you are now, right? Like you are, you're the, you're the main person in charge. So what was that? How would that transition get you there? Oh, on so was, many levels. <laughs> Not enough. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, I think it was leaving. It was leaving and finding women who were in charge and were doing well and were demonstrating different models of leadership. And I do, I hear what, what you're all saying about like genderizing these models of leadership are not necessarily helpful because they they flow between genders. But the more folks that get to lead, the the standard of what leadership looks like gets to change. 
And then it just broadens what's possible in leadership. And I think that's why having this conversation specifically about women in leadership is still important. If we move too quickly through this and say we're over it, like we're it's behind us, uh, we will go right back to the old models of leadership because they're so deeply ingrained in our bones. I, I, as a as a woman thinking about becoming a pastor, I think I was called to ministry. I've told this story a few times. I was called to ministry when I was six, but I couldn't name it that. Instead, I had to think, well, I could be a writer. I could write about spiritual things. I could be a teacher because I was teaching in parochial schools. I could I could focus on spiritual things in my teaching. Um, you could marry a pastor. That's always an option. I could marry a pastor. <laughs> yeah. Can we be honest about what that actually means, though? Like, so Rajiv talked about how women in your guys' background could be pastors, but they weren't ordained, right? And then that, that's just in a couple of. In a couple, just a couple of very local progressive churches. churches. Okay, and then yeah. Bonnie talked about seeing how the women who did become leaders were patronized, and the whole idea of being a lead, being a leader but not a leader. What that translates to is all of these people doing so much work, doing all the work that like the leaders should be doing, or doing it behind the scenes, and like not shaping the not shaping it in a way that would like give them the credit for all the work that they're doing, you know, or shaping the the kind of the outcome. I like listening to hear you say that you're like, I could be a writer, I could be a teacher. It's like what I hear is I could do all the hard work and then some person because of their private parts will get like all of the credit and all of the benefit from all of that work. It feels Yeah. Yeah. Exactly, Alan. Frustrating. It's, it's really triggering, you know, actually hearing you say that because that's exact how many times that I've written stuff that have been, have come out of a man's mouth and the man got credit for it. I can't even count. Man, I don't want to just move past what you were just saying too fast. Like the idea that leadership itself needs to change. Like we all know that those of us who are in this space know that the leadership that we've known and the leadership that we're seeking are two very different things. And you're saying the more people that get to be leaders, the wider of a picture that gets to be. I like that a lot. Gone are the days when, like, you know, you're dragging people behind you because you're the God figure in the wilderness, like, telling people where to go, you know? Right. And, um, Jeff, I want to loop back to something. And this could be an issue of optics. It could be an issue of substance. I, I don't know. But, you know, you're a straight white male kind of on the surface co-opting a woman's experience. I'm kind of like, I don't know, that rubbed me the wrong way. Yeah, I see what you're saying. Um, certainly that wasn't – now, <laughs> I'm like, like that wasn't my intent. I'm sorry if you were offended. Uh, <laughs> uh, I was just thinking you are saying it sarcastically though, right? Like you were like like the idea that people had put the gender that, – Yeah, yeah. So my, my, my context was like that – that the only reason that I that I felt that I wasn't appropriating that, but I, what I'm saying is by the standards that were placed in front of me, that if that by by the definition of that system, I was more of quote unquote a woman than a man in terms of how they the the, the derogatory statements that were said towards 
why women can't be in leadership that you see all the time. You see it represented in the the Trump Hillary debate. You know, like uh, why can't a woman be president? And I think it's I think it's indicative of something underlying in our culture in general that a black man was voted president before a, a white woman. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I, I hear that. I, I certainly don't want to come off as like, well, I'm, I understand all women because I'm, you know, sort of one of them. I, I, that wasn't my intention, but, uh, it was just saying that, that the system would have defined me in that role because I, because I didn't, I didn't quote unquote lead like I was supposed to lead. It was, I was always accused of questioning leadership and having a problem with authority and, uh, Kind of going back to the first question. I don't, I feel like I'm talking way too much on this particular episode, but going back to that first. You're talking like the normal amount. That's why you feel like it's too much. <laughs> uh, maybe. Um, but going back to that, that first question, like what was our experience with women in leadership? I grew up in a denomination that uh, was actually pretty progressive in that terms. There was no question about ordaining women that in, in terms of the policy. It was definitely like – in in practice, it you know there were still very few women that were there, but I always grew up with sermons encouraging women to be pastors and in leadership and stuff like that. And somehow, in the midst of that, I was at a place where I said out loud several times. Unfortunately, I would never go to a church that's led by a woman. And here's my reasons: da 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 da. So after I graduated high school, I signed up for this uh, summer missions trip. So it was this around the world deal is through some missions organization. And uh, I didn't know anyone on the trip. I signed up, uh, I paid my money, and then we would we went to the meeting place, and I met everyone for the first time. I met our team leader, and our team leader was uh, a woman. And I remember, you know, sarcastically giving her a hard time. Well, how we're, we're being led by a woman, da da da. And I had frank conversations with her in terms of like what I thought about that. And fortunately, she didn't take my crap, and she engaged me because she didn't have to, and she shouldn't have. But I left that trip having a very different view of being under a woman's leadership. And I think going forward, that that shaped a lot of things because I realized with every circumstance that I was in is that I worked better with the style of leadership that, going back to what I said before, that was deemed – that was regulated to church administrators and that, that typically – were women in that, in that particular setting. Uh, so it was, uh, it was a process for me and I don't know where I was going with all that. Um, I forgot <laughs> the initial question. So again, that means I'm talking too much. So I'm done. <laughs> Bonnie, I just, you know, I feel like, um, you know, you in so many ways, um, exude to me what, what phenomenal ministry looks like despite your gender, like that has nothing in my mind to do with it. And in some ways it does, right? Because of the experience you bring and, and the, the shit you've had to endure. And so I really want to hear from you, like not just how were we raised? What, how does that form our opinion? But now that you will have arrived, <laughs> like, you know, uh, um, what is this experience like for you? The experience of leadership? Yeah. Yeah, I it it's been such a long and and hard road and to get to the place where I could see myself as a leader. I still have a, have a struggle with claiming pastoral identity, for sure. 
I I really first I need to say I stand on the shoulders of a lot of badass women mm-hmm. yes. who fought hard and demanded a place at the table when they were denied it. And I'm in relationship with a lot of badass women who um, continue this this fight to and it feels like an internal fight. Um, I I mentor a few women who are thinking about becoming pastors and wondering about whether or not it's it's a calling that they have. And uh, they tell me that, like, how can you claim an identity that nobody else sees in you? Like, identity is formed communally. And if no one else sees you in that particular role, then how can you say, this is my role, this is my place? So there's, you know, there's this this tension that I feel every time I get up in front of people and say things. I remember when I first started in seminary and I spoke in class or something and the whole room got quiet. This was after I had left my my formative tradition, Seventh-day Adventism, and I was in a progressive Christian seminary, uh, Pacific School of Religion. And I spoke in class and the whole room got quiet and everybody was looking at me and listening to me. And I started to have like a panic attack because that is so foreign to my experience up until that time, unless I was in a room with other women. You know, then we we listen to each other in like a Bible teacher sort of a way or Bible study sort of a way. And and then I had male friends who were I were I was close to, but in a setting where I didn't know the people and we were talking about something theological or biblical, and I answered a question and people stopped and listened to me, it felt so weird. And so I still, yeah, I have to push through that like Every time I get up in front, it's getting easier, but it's it's a challenge. It's a challenge. Until people can point to you and say, you are pastor worthy, it's hard to accept that for oneself. Absolutely. Yeah. I get really yeah. triggered by the like listening stuff, you know, being worthy to be listened to. So like that's a really powerful story. Yeah, my my favorite thing now, because I'm co-pastor with um, another woman pastor who is an amazing pastor, and I really enjoy being uh, in relationship as two female leaders, women leaders in our church. But we have little girls who are growing up in our church, and after church, sometimes they're running around in the sanctuary, and they'll grab like a scarf or something, and they'll put it over their Next, and they'll go up to, you know, the microphones and they'll pretend like they're preaching. And that is the most beautiful and amazing thing that has happened since yeah. I became a pastor. That is beautiful. I mean, that that's that's sort of the idea um, in so many levels. Like, you know, I, I remember talking to someone about like even gay marriage. Like for so many of us, we didn't grow up in a culture that, that we saw people similar to us. Right. We had no role models, right? And And then the generation of gay men who were sort of like fighting the fight died of AIDS. Right. And so like men in their in their 50s really are like the largest oldest gay men culture we have because all of the men like above 55 were dying of AIDS a lot of them and so like to see 
to see what relationships look like, to see good role models. Like we didn't have that. We didn't see it in society. We didn't see it in our communities. You get to, I guess what I'm saying is like you get to create what young people look to as the model. And I couldn't think of someone better, quite frankly. Like, you're very sweet, like, Casey. And I think it's beautiful. And I think it's beautiful that you have young people in your church who are putting scarves around their necks and are saying, I want to be like you. Mm-hmm. That, that's, that is a beautiful story. Not, not to make this about men, because like, this is not about men necessarily, but like, I feel like what I'm realizing all of a sudden is that I haven't had a whole lot of role models in my life of men listening to women, men empowering women. Like I think about my church context, there weren't men that had that as a high priority. And I know Rajiv does a lot of work with like multivalent masculinity and like different ways of, of embodying that. Um, maybe that's what we need more of for young dudes is like seeing the men in their lives, actually listening to women. Think about our society that doesn't like, we don't believe women. We don't listen to women. We don't empower them on a society wide, not just church, but like all of us. And we need better examples of that. Can I push back for a minute, Alan? (laughs) (laughs) Men don't need to empower women. Women have power all by themselves. Absolutely. Yeah. Sorry that, that I meant the listening thing more than anything else. Like to me, I literally grew up in a church where the pastors were saying like, do not listen to women. We were like told not mm-hmm. to, we were told to walk out of the room. How different would it have been for me and the, the, the guys I grew up with to see men who like were excited to listen to women. That would, that would have been a different experience and I could have envisioned being like that instead of having to try to figure it out as I went along. Yeah. We all lose. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, the yeah, the power dynamics and power the way we talk about power is, you know, something we t- we deal with in multivalent masculinity conversations uh a lot. Um but you know, as as part of this little bit of conversation here, I came across I think it was a meme, which is, you know, a weird place to come come in contact with wisdom. But it was a woman sharing about her experience in the workplace and she said, "You know, I just noticed something really cool today. She said, I have a male colleague, and when we're in meetings, he will do this thing frequently. And it it just struck me today how meaningful it is, where she will be expressing an idea, someone will cut her off, and then he gives it a second. He's like, hey, you know, let's call her Jenny. Hey, Jenny, I think you were just interrupted. What were you saying? And then steps back and she's like, that is such a great gift. So one of the things, you know, if we're trying to as men uh, or allies that are trying to be supportive, that's such a great concrete thing. Hey, Jenny, you were just interrupted. What was it you were trying to say? What about when you're the person who interrupts people? (laughs) That's, That's my question. Do you like well, hopefully, interrupt yourself hopefully, and say, "Hey, Jenny, I just interrupted yeah, you." I am so yeah, sorry. Totally, <laughs> I've been totally. trying to do that lately a lot more. Yeah, yeah, and and I think that it's really interesting to hear, like especially Jeff. I keep coming back to what you, you were sharing about how your model of leadership has been compared to that of a woman's, and and said to you in sort of a denigrating kind of way, like demeaning, diminishing sort of way. Um, And I I imagine that all of you 
have had some experience with being compared to a woman in some way or another. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and what, like, what is that like, you know? Well, I mean, at least for me, like, it's always been derogatory, right? Gay men often are lumped in with women. So some of some of the my experiences with that are not just necessarily rooted in like church stuff, but rooted in the world and homophobia. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of the things that I did notice when Jose and I when Jose and I started doing ministry together, when he you know when we got together, um, people defaulted him to the hus- you know the pastor's wife, right? And there were lots of jokes about that that he was to behave in the, in these certain ways which was really shocking to me right like that gender didn't matter that he was responsible for a role you know what i'm saying like and that and i it felt icky at first right it felt like you could just see very clearly like these lines that were being made yeah i think the only time i've ever like i just realized like i i would, I would expect that i would have been faced a lot more of that that I have um, stuff. So it was never really compared to being a woman other than when I cultivate my space, like my home or um, other spaces, it'll be like, wow, you're in touch with your femininity. And I'm like, that's interesting. That's like a weird thing to say in my mind, <laughs> I guess. Like, I don't know. Like it's, uh, it's just kind of odd. And then I realized like, I guess we don't as a, culture expect men to cultivate spaces as much as we expect women to cultivate spaces. And that includes communities. Like you're all talking about how the, what the women in leadership were like aware of the bigger picture or aware of, of like that awareness is a learned thing and an expected thing. I think that's what we keep saying over and over, but that's the only time I've, I felt that comparison made, man, these are deep questions, buddy. (laughs) Straight to it. I mean, part of, I think part of what I'm thinking about and asking these questions is, um, to see the way that this stuff plays out, like in so many different ways, uh, and not just in church leadership, but churches following the larger culture, churches creating the larger culture at the same time, especially when you're in a Christian, uh, dominant mm-hmm. culture space. Hegemony. Hegemony. There you go. <laughs> So, um, so I'm, I'm wondering, is there anything within the tradition, the Christian tradition that could disrupt this? Yay. So we transition to I, that. The, yes. the tradition or the history? Both. The, well, yeah, whatever. I, the whole time you were talking, I was just like, Ugh! it was so ironic hearing like, oh, we're finally, you know, now that there's girls who could put a scarf on their neck and, you know, be preaching, it is the most freaking ironic thing in the world that Christianity of all things has had to like progress into that in the last couple thousand years. Because like the first, the first people to ever talk about the resurrection are women. Like there's a huge, rich history, like the, the, sorry, I'm freaking out, but the gospel of Romans was carried by Phoebe. Who would have explained it to the people she brought it to? Like all of the things that we even like used to to establish patriarchy were were from the very beginning um, a much more egalitarian existence. And so it's just ironic to me that that's the very thing that became so patriarchal is astounding when you think about it. Sorry, that's just a yeah. No, totally. I mean, I mean you, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, you know, and Mary Magdalene. Um, what, thanks to Nag Hammadi, the discovery there, we know 
probably she was going to be the foundation of the church. Um, but then that infighting kind of buried all of that record. And, uh, you know, Peter became the dude. Have, have you seen the recent research about Mary? This this like is like very cutting edge in the last year or two. Yeah, where go ahead. there's a there's a, a scholar who has done all of her work on the idea that the one Mary got divided up into two in some of the gospels because it was like way too powerful of a character to where it's like we had to have two different and there's textual evidence for this. So it's not just like a, wow. a, a you know a, a, a harebrained theory or whatever. It's actually something that's sorry I don't know where that word comes from. It's not just a theory, um, but it's it's like the these these powerful women in, in the gospel had to be split up as characters otherwise they would carry too much weight and i mean we've seen that in other areas too with like junia and junius right this like apostle who's a woman couldn't have been a woman so that the scribes changed her name to be to be a man throughout uh christian history we're discovering stuff like this all the time or frescoes there are early christian frescoes of people serving the eucharist and they're when they clean it, there are women underneath. <laughs> They've been literally painted over. And so there's there's been a real concerted effort to to fight back against the egalitarian nature of what Christianity is and what Jesus did. It by nature liberated people, and that's always been really dangerous. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Jesus, the stories of Jesus with women are really powerful. You know, they really are. I can think of so many. I I think I think like healing girls, you know, that that in and of itself, um, going out of his way to heal a Roman Roman's daughter is um is a powerful statement for its time. And in and in Mark where that happens, the like the connecting passage that's connected through like years and things like that, told in the same setting, is the woman who is unclean by society standards, grabbing Jesus. And then he's like blessing her for doing that. That like grasping of power. You would think that that would be the most unholy thing ever, right? For a woman to do, but that's praised and, in the text. And he, he took, he took her grasp for power and turned it back on her and affirmed her, your power, your power made you whole, not mine. So that, yeah, it's, it's uh you, you don't have to look far to find these these <laughs> clearly disruptive messages to the status quo, and yet here we are. Well, the truth is there's a tension. There's a tension in all of the – the Bible is not one monolithic thing. It's a lot of voices. It's a lot of paradigms and prerogatives. People are doing different things in different texts. You can latch on to like two verses, two sections in the entire Bible that talk about like women and women's participation and even like – I don't know, in the book of uh, 1 Corinthians, where it says something about women being silent in churches, just three chapters before, talked about women prophesying in churches. So there's like even tensions within a text itself. My question is, why do we, as especially American evangelicals or post-evangelicals, latch on to like very tiny sections of the New Testament voice and ignore the wealth of of evidence of what Christianity was doing. What is it about us and our society that we need that and want that? And I think it's what Rajiv was talking about, and it's power. It's all about power. I mean, the, yeah, male male supremacy is it's real, is strong. It's evil. It's powerful. It's resilient. It's shape shifting. I mean, that fucker is like 
is a real hard beast to kill, but it's doable. Bonnie put up the the quote from uh, Jeff invoked John MacArthur, so I think I get to talk to say his name again. Um, I went to school, John MacArthur's school. I got a John MacArthur oh. study Bible when I was 16. My parents ah. handed it to me, and I was like, oh, you know, and read his commentaries and all his books. He's so many books. Very prolific man. And uh, this whole thing about, uh, you know, go home, Beth Moore, didn't surprise me at all. Like, I'm so, I'm so kind of done even talking about him in particular because of how much it was a big part of my life in the past. But it didn't surprise me at all. I grew up, I, w- I went to that school and we bought like, you know, evangelical feminism and biblical truth and like all point by point arguments against feminism. But in that quote, when you listen, what Bonnie showed us when she like quoted it, he goes on to argue and say uh, how the primary effort of feminism is not equality, it's power. Like, you know, they, they don't want to do the, the hard jobs. They just want things like leadership, like senators, preachers congressmen and they don't want to be plumbers right yeah this is what he's saying and then he says uh the power structure in a university they want power not equality and this is the highest location they can ascend to that power in the evangelical church and overturn what is quote-unquote scriptural so i think feminism i think this is feminism gone to church and this is why we can't let culture exegete the bible he's like it is about power for him and it's about power for men too they don't they that's that's what they're most concerned about and that's a fascinating thing to me. Yeah, but what the what the fuck is wrong with people who have been rendered powerless by the systems in existence trying to gain some power in order to to be represented, in order to reshape how things work? I don't I don't even understand why that's a problem for him. Should we read this quote? If we're going to bring it up, we should read it. Sure. I don't want to be the one to read it, though. <laughs> you pretty much it shouldn't be on on my lips. You pretty much just did. Like, I mean, I you, yeah, you, you pretty much just did. You pretty much just quoted it. Lord, forgive me. But yeah, it's like uh, John MacArthur's such an itch. We should just scratch him and move on. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Oh my god. Well, it, it's an interesting question. Where you know. Where how does Christian feminism work? Like, what does Christian feminism look like? And I think, I, I think that's an important question to have because I, I think even progressive Christians don't really know the answer to that question, or they haven't. Amen. You know, they just sort of think it's done. Like uh, we're feminists, you know. Um, and then you have folks like John MacArthur and others who can continue to make their arguments, and people actually. To me, the argument that he's making isn't rational. Like, there's, I, I don't get it. Like, it's not a, I don't see how he comes to the logical conclusion. Wait, a straight can... white man isn't being rational. <laughs> I mean, yeah, <laughs> if, as if, Alan if, says. If, well, it's it's rational in the sense that his goal is not necessarily to be in step with the gospel and let the gospel exegete all the rest of his like, you know, theology or whatever. Uh, his, his, it's rational in the sense that his, uh, goal is to preserve some kind of hegemony from the 1950s. Like, that's it. It's a cultural moment that has been, you know, how when someone is doing something and they blame everyone else that they're doing it, like the whole Trump thing where he's like accusing these people of the very things that like he's actually doing, it's the same thing with that movement. They're, they, they think that they're not being cultural, but the, the truth is they're just trying really freaking hard to preserve a very specific 
American evangelical. But I culture. don't. But I don't. I don't read this statement as rational. I I don't I, I, <laughs> I read it as emotional and um, fear inducing, right? That was the joke that I was trying to make. Was that um, the the constant argument is you know women are irrational or too emotional for this kind of work. Therefore, right? Everything I read from these people, everything that's happening on our national stage is emotional and and reactionary and fear-based it's all it's all um over the top i think for me the thing that i you know as we're talking about this i want to go back to is this idea of like we, we have moved away i mean the reformation permitted us the ability to read scripture for ourselves right that was like the big push read scripture for yourself and we have done an awful job of interpreting it <laughs> and um and and taking these texts seriously in a way that, that i think holds worth and value still because we were we're walking away from seeing them as stories but i i want to move away from this idea of the Reformation to a sense of liberation. Like, that's what you're inviting us into, Bonnie. Like, this idea, like, as we're talking about feminist theology, this woman reaching for her power and Jesus affirming the power that she had within her, right? Like, like we should be moving towards, as progressive Christians, this sense of liberation for all people. Like, to believe them when they talk, believe their experience, believe their pain, affirm their the the gift that they are to the world that's that's where we should be moving and that's i think that um when we are talking about women in in ministry they model for us in so many ways the direction the church should be going i think did i just did i just rant forever i'm sorry that was great correct me if i'm wrong there's probably a lot of good working definitions of feminism but like what it seems to me functionally is like the dismantle of this, at least this iteration is the dismantle of the systems, which are oppressing people, especially women in society. And like, that's what scares people, right? The the whole, the whole goal of feminism is equality. That's really what that is. It's a shared life. It's not this, it's, it's not the boogeyman that they made it out. But the, the problem is, when the status quo is so much bent on an unequal kind of existence, that to go for equality feels like the scary, you know, boogeyman feminism is going to come to usurp all of our power or whatever. And the, yeah, I don't know. You were asked about Christian feminism and there are people who are uncomfortable with that, write huge books that are uncomfortable with that and get converts who are basically like rooting that out in their churches. Cause there are great feminist literatures out there that, that are, you know, dangerous to their systems. I've I've heard it put really simply this way that makes sense. Feminism is the radical notion that women are people too. <laughs> right. And the fear is the fear, the pushback, the reason why they don't uh want feminists or whatever women to have equity is because they are afraid that they will that men, they, when I say they, I mean men, are afraid that they will be treated the way that they have treated women forever. That, and that's the, where the fear is, is if we give them, if we allow them to have, you know, uh, access and power like we do, maybe they'll treat us as poorly as we've treated them. Or at the very least, you're not going to benefit all of this uncredited labor. That's seriously how it looks like to me. 
you think about like the like the joke about uh <laughs> the area fifty one um everybody shows up all the millennials are dressed all cool and then it ends up being one sixty year old woman who actually does all the work and crosses the line and goes into area fifty one every church ever is like that all the like real leadership and work is done by women who will not get credit and that that's a system that really benefits men in an economical way too yeah for sure and I mean, Christian feminism, um, the the whole project of Christianity, isn't it equality? Like, isn't yeah. it more and more room at the table for right. everyone? A widening, yes. widening circle. Isn't that part of what Jesus was was trying to do? You know, using his own tradition of Judaism um, as the foundation for that. So... You know, Christian feminism, just that to me, that just seems like those two things fit together quite brilliantly and should actually be a force in the broader culture against male supremacy, against patriarchy. Um, yeah, so we we talked about some of the things that men can do as allies to women, and, and I, I want to... I know Rajiv earlier you talked you you uh pushed back <laughs> against uh Jeff about co-opting women's experience and I just want to say that Jeff when I heard you speak I felt kinship. So it, it I appreciated what you were saying and I I appreciate very much and I can't speak for all women but I appreciate it when men find ways to tap into their own places where they felt shut down or cast aside and can speak from that place, however it's named, because then it feels like the allyship has some substance to it. And it's not just, you know, kind of a like a facade or sh- charade. So I appreciated that. And and I I see all of you as incredible allies as we continue to work towards a more equal place in church and in the broader culture. But, you know, what what are ways you imagine that you can step into helping to move us along? What are way what are some unique ways to that men can do that? I think one of the big things is is the willingness to show ass. And what I mean by that is <laughs> Like oh honey, <laughs> what? <laughs> I'm getting there. I'm getting there. What what I mean by that is there, there's your t-shirt. Jeff. You've never heard that expression. <laughs> I think that white men in particular, and myself included, is that we are so worried about being wrong in the public forum. I mean, it's it's the cry of the alt right, right? Like, well, you can't say anything anymore because this, that, this. So, and I think that that's trickled down into progressivism too, where white men are afraid to say something because they're going to get in trouble. But I don't think we should be afraid to say something, and I think we should we should anticipate being wrong and and learning to walk through that because i think one of the underlining things that we've talked about in this whole thing is that representation is important right those little girls running through the church the only thing that motivates them to put on that little shawl and pretend like they're preaching is because they've seen it in front of them representation is important and if we're going to talk about men being allies 
by getting out there and having the right things to say and be using our platform to give other voice, all we're doing is perpetuating the thing that we're trying to get a move from because we're putting ourselves up as experts. We're putting ourselves up as whatever. And as awkward, honestly, as it was when Rajiv said, man, you really you know, curated woman. My first instinct, honestly, is, oh, I got to make sure to cut that out. But no, I can't cut that out. Like, I can't cut places out on on a platform that we have where I'm going to be wrong, where where I'm going to expose that, you know, I don't have the mark. And then ability to be uh, corrected in a form like that and really say, all right, I hear that. And back away from that ability or that that desire to to provide context to justify ourselves and just be like, yeah, okay. I get it. I'm listening. I'm trying. And and deconstruct our places of power and deconstruct our platforms as opposed to to strengthening them by being a new expert and just perpetuating the same thing. To fill out the progressive Christian bingo card, I want to piggyback on that. And you should add show ass that. to the progressive Christian. <laughs> show ass. <laughs> um, I have so many problem. comments about that, but I am trying so hard to behave. I think that's a, a way more prescient point than people realize, especially for our listeners. I know a lot of listeners who are in spaces, single spaces, closed groups, different areas where men will make missteps, not even just missteps. They'll say something very misogynistic and people around them, especially women have had to have these conversations are far more informed than them because they've like done the hard work of studying and thinking and talking and learning and changing. Whereas a lot of men enter the conversation as like, you know, educational infants almost in this area. And so there's a real fear that like when they step in there, like they're, you know how people get offended? Like, you know, the whole, like, you think you're better than me. Like, you think you know more than me. There's there's that whole culture out there that, like, just because you're educated doesn't mean that I don't have a voice, too. Like, that I, that I know what I'm talking about. And you have to overcome so much momentum, cultural momentum, to be able to just be like, yeah, I don't know. I don't know a whole lot. And when people respond and educate me, I shouldn't be offended by that. Like, that's asking a lot of almost anyone in our culture, but especially men. And so learning to be in spaces where you are teachable or you at least know out loud that you don't know everything and that you're willing to be corrected is a countercultural needed kind of thing. Just listening is really important. Seeking, seeking information from people. So I've, you know, done a lot of Googling and reading and et cetera, et cetera. And, um, there's one. Uh, article by Lisa O'Neill in Everyday Feminism. It's a couple of years old, but she's got a couple of really good points in here if you're trying to be uh, an ally to women. Like one of her things is don't ask women to do additional emotional labor. We're just used to getting that from women. Think about the space you take up, which, you know, we that interrupting little pieces uh, uh, about that very thing. Ask women to share their stories with you and just listen. You'll learn a lot. Find other men, other allies doing this and and figure out how to band together to do, to do better. And doing this work, this is my favorite one, doing this work, speaking as an ally, doesn't make you a hero. It, it just tries to make you less of a dick. So I, I shouldn't expect applause. For listening, no. <laughs> I I think the risk if if I if a person and I I mean we're talking about 
women today, but this translates to all the press groups, right? If somebody is willing to take the risk to say to you, that hurt me, or that, you know, that triggered me in this way, the risk that they're taking is probably bigger than the risk that you are taking in receiving that information and then changing or letting it affect you, you know? Um, And I have to remember that as a white person all the time. That was really well said. Yeah. That's some profound, that's a profound bomb right there. Us males said so. So that's, that means it's true, Bonnie. We that's right. Yeah. Now that I have we've lifted up your, we've approved your voice. So proceed with our blessing. <laughs> I'm gonna put like a Bonnie quote and then put Alan underneath it. You know, like Michael Scott and Wayne Gretzky. Like I'll just all the way down. Like I'll check all my thoughts with you, Alan, just Thank to you. make sure they're in I, line. I appreciate that. I can be of service. You know. <laughs> don't shake your head, Casey. It was a. A, a joke that had no. I know, but no I don't know reality. why it just makes my skin crawl. I just. <laughs> I, I, but you know, um, I don't know why I'm into praising everyone today, but I really want to lift up Rajiv the work you're doing with the nonvalent uh, masculinity group. I mean, there are no. You're doing this, right? You're like the only one I know doing this thing. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So there's not a lot of other people doing the great work you're doing but i wish there were more i wish that more people would gather together and have these conversations and i think that you could really show the world what it means to be an ally the and how rich and deep that work is because it's healing work right it's healing work on both ends so i just i'm always impressed with you but i'm really grateful for the work you're doing around that yeah thanks casey it's Thank you. And I want to lift up you, Casey, because I don't think we talk about this enough. Um, Your work with young people who refuse to be defined by particular genders at all, you know, like kids who are nonconforming, nonbinary, and who are really the ones who are leading us into whatever is next that we can't even see right now. Um, You are leading them. And that that is always amazing to me. And I, I get to every now and then be alongside Casey as he's doing his work. And uh, I it just it's so powerful, so powerful. So your voice in this conversation is really important because you are connected to the voices of the future in a way that's, you know, amazing. Thanks, Bonnie. Yeah, I wondered. um it might be interesting to have the to have like a talk back with some of our queer kids about this very conversation because I the whole time have been wondering what they would be thinking and hearing and what would stand out to them because they don't live in the world we live in because they're teaching me all the time about about gender and how it doesn't exist <laughs> how it's not a real thing um and so yeah I would I would love to hear from some of them about this yeah. And they listen to the podcast, so we should challenge them. I think that would be awesome. All right. Well, uh, let us know what you think. Uh, You can add this voice or your experience to this particular conversation by commenting at the show notes at irenacast.com slash 156. Also on the show notes, you'll find all the relevant links and a complete list of all the other ways to like, follow, and contact the show. That's irenacast.com slash 156. 
56. Uh, on the other side of the music, we're going to be playing a brand new segment called Craigslist Prices Right. So Craigslist Prices Right. How this is going to work is that each of us have found an item on Craigslist. Uh, I don't know what everyone's thought process is. It could be ridiculous. It could be just a standard item, whatever. But the the purpose is for each of us to sell the others on what this item is. And then every other one of the co-hosts will guess that price. And then whoever's closest to the price without going over, we're following prices right rules, I assume, uh, closest to that price without going over is uh, the winner of that round. Because we're so good at keeping score when we do <laughs> games like this. I'm going to keep score. Uh, of course you will. <laughs> Jeff, can you just say, Alan, come on down. Can you shout it out? <laughs> I would have if you didn't ask me to do it, but now I've been told to do it, so now I'm not going to do it. it. That's true. One thing I realized about Jeff is when you tell him to do something, it'll you'll never do it, even if it's, it's to his detriment. It's wonderful. All right. So who who wants to go first in this little uh, experiment? I do. All right. Okay, so Reverend Body, come on down. (laughs) Except I'm the game host, right? Oh, my bad. So all of you, come on down because I have a beautiful Lady Liberty Halloween costume. (laughs) All right, now this is not a cheap version like the kind that you get at Oriental Trading Company. This one is amazing. It has full-on sequins. A Velcro back, glitter fabric, and it has never been worn. So, what do you bid for this Lady Liberty costume? It has, uh, yeah, it's it's spectacular. You should see it. <laughs> well, we know it isn't free because Liberty is not free. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god yes, yes. i'm gonna it's say I'm gonna, I'm gonna say I, i'm gonna say 65 dollars okay kc says 65 dollars i'm gonna say 20 dollars whoa say 40, i'll say 45 roger says 20 dollars and Jeff, you can't go last every time oh yeah i know he has oh. to go first i'm one dollar pulling the one dollar uh, move oh, alan you said 45 dollars yes okay well the actual craigslist price. price no it's not the retail price because the they're craigslist given price. the craigslist price is 25 dollars in yeah. carmichael california wow. it's mine so, Raj, you get this beautiful Lady Liberty costume for girls ages 10 to 12. You got it. I'm sure it'll fit. <laughs> Your leg. <laughs> so, I'll, I'll All right. go next. Actually, anybody okay. can wear it. It's not just for girls. That's dumb. Yeah. There you go. Yeah, Free totally. for all of us. That's right. Okay, folks. If you are on a quest to be the ultimate hipster, this is for you. It is a collectible Woody the Woodpecker back scratcher from Universal Studios. It's like new, implying there's only a little bit of back skin on Woody's 
fingernails. Oh my god. What are your bids? Five dollars. That's what I was gonna say. I'm going last this time. Uh, I'm gonna go free. This is one of those free <laughs> postings. <laughs> This person just wants their cells on your body. They yes. Pay for I'm an gonna, ad to give it I'll away. I'll say $8. $8. Five free eight. Uh, wait, who said five? Bonnie. I'm going to say $9. Okay. Sorry, Casey. And uh, it's $5. Whoa! Oh, no. All right, Bonnie. That, there's another. There's something about me too. Is that I usually get the price right. So Jeff, you Dang. may have some competition. Boom. I think it was the right. back skin that uh, threw everybody <laughs> off the side. So so far, not. I'm just gonna say that you know you guys are in the same household, and uh, the possibility <laughs> of. I'm not gonna oh, say I, you're cheating. Right, right. we, we need. Cheat. To- I'm not saying you're cheating. <laughs> just throw that out there. That's all. <laughs> Right, Thanks, Alan. Each. I appreciate your trust. You're, you're welcome. <laughs> okay, Alan, go ahead. Your turn. All right. Uh, your home may be amazing, but the one thing it is lacking that could take it to the next level is a nice barn door. There are two barn doors for your home. That's how it is listed for sale in Lincoln, California. How much for each gorgeous 100-year-old barn barn doors. Uh, What color are they? the color of a barn door. Is the the hardware included? Uh, It's just a barn door. It's just the doors. (laughs) (laughs) There's no hinges or anything. No picture? Um, You don't see a picture? I see a picture. A picture. Uh, It looks like a barn door to me. And... uh, it yep. looks like a barn door. That's good. <laughs> so there are two barn doors. How much for each one? Dimensions? They're selling them separately. Oh, separate. Right. I'm, I'm just. I'm just going to guess. Okay. How, they're, they're selling them separately or as a combo? They're selling them each. So, separately. and we're guessing the each price. Yeah, you're guessing the each price, and they're they're, they're pretty tall. Okay, they're I'm going to say tall. 150 dollars. I'm writing down your bids. Your your guesses i'm gonna say two hundred dollars each i mean sounds kind of nice yeah, me too about... i'm like i want this barn door. <laughs> your home needs a barn door you know 125 i'm gonna go with 201 dollars whoa <laughs> casey's been robbed Ooh. twice now <laughs> shots fired actual craigslist price for large barn door is 250 bucks each <laughs> I was going to say 250. Up. I was totally going to say 250. comes in with you. Oh, my wow. goodness. That's expensive. outrageous. But 100-year-old barn doors, that's probably a really good deal. That yeah, is a good deal. Yeah. You, Are those still for them? sale? <laughs> <laughs> we'll put the links in the show notes, you, right? I'm not far from Lincoln. We will put the links in the show okay. notes. What would, you, what would you do with them in your home? No, they could even be decorative for like the shop, a couple of bare walls. Yeah. You'd, Anyway, like put a, like anyway, put, right. a bar, put a bar and door on your on on your wall. They're the whole they're the whole big thing right now. Like okay. in terms of like bathrooms That's and really stuff, weird having to me, and I I get that it is, but they slide, but they slide. You don't like open, yeah. Them. So you have more hall slide. space and you can put stuff. Oh, behind. you mean it's actually really nice, it like a door? Yeah, yeah. yeah. 
Oh, yeah. I was just yeah. imagining like putting up on a wall. Or They're something. super cute. Wow, <laughs> like a like framing it or something. I don't know, <laughs> like, like decorative <laughs> door. In See, Alan, no, Alan, no, like that, sh- that should door. be your front door. Instead of swinging it open, <laughs> you just stand behind it and psh, you part. <laughs> Slide them open. You part them. You're like, hello, welcome to my house. <laughs> well, Rajiv is in the lead with two, and Bonnie close behind with one. I shall answer the door in my Lady Liberty costume. Mm. There you go. Sequen- sequence with my it. ass showing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, help us. All right, who's who's next? Me. Okay, so I was going to come up with a sales pitch for this particular item. However, I think that this person does a far better job than I ever could. So I'm going to read to you the post and give you a glimpse into this wonder that is a magical horse. Hello, this is my lovely horse legacy. He has been in my family for five years. He truly is a wonderful creature. At night, his mane glows like the brightest of Jupiter's moons. It is what we in the horse world call magical. I give him daily protein shakes to make sure he continues to grow big and strong. I don't know when he'll stop growing. He'll probably continue until his time comes. Please be prepared to accommodate a horse the size of a small tank if you plan on keeping him for more than a month. I feed him a strict diet of cucumbers and horseradish. Some people say it's sick to feed a horse horseradish. (laughs) But since, I think he meant since, but since horseradish doesn't actually have horse in it, I'm sure it's okay. So if (laughs) if you want a magical horse... That is not a cannibal, despite popular opinion. Is this a real horse? This is, I'm assuming, there's no picture. This is just, uh, I'm assuming it's a real horse, but it is a, it is a, a horse of a horse, a tank of a horse. <laughs> just imagining a guy showing if you up will. in a horse costume, you know? <laughs> just remember that this isn't just a horse. This horse is attached to a legacy of Five horses. Five years. Yes. And that will not stop growing. It apparently will continue to grow until it dies. All right. I'm going to go $1. <laughs> $1. Wow. For shame, Rajiv. This is someone's legacy, and you're throwing it away for I'm a meter. saying 250 oh. I'm $2. saying Wait, $2.50 or 250 250 2000 I think that's more appropriate <laughs> considering – it's I'll a say one ninety nine. I love it. All right. You know that doesn't do anything for you. <laughs> Don't tell her. That she does can't nothing change. for you. She can't change. <laughs> yeah. Before I reveal wait, wait, the price, Rajiv, Rajiv has to say what. No, I said a dollar. No, he said oh. he said no, a dollar. One hundred and ninety nine. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but okay. somebody oh. didn't. Alan say two hundred. Two thousand. Oh, two thousand. Okay. All right, before I reveal the price, there is an alternate pricing that says if you don't want to pay this price, if you have albino chickens, there may be a negotiation available. <laughs> That's right, the barter system. <laughs> Dude, if I had known, I would have said three albino magical chickens. Magical chickens for so, a magical horse. You can get a magical horse for albino chickens if you want to. But the actual retail price of this wonderful legacy-filled magical horse is $800. I was going to say oh. 800 Dang it. 800 
eight hundred. So it's like an actual horse. <laughs> that means I thought I you couldn't sell it was an animals. actual horse. I thought yeah. you couldn't sell animals on Craigslist anymore. You can. They're all over the place. You can sell I mean, pregnant what, you, sheep. What what can't you do you on Craigslist? Like, I, mean, <laughs> I own. And why I have was lots that of friends who listing? would attest to that. Why was that not <laughs> I was going to do that, but I thought, no, that's not nice. <laughs> all right, Casey won that one with a bid of two something. Ooh, Ooh nice. All right, Casey, give us your final, your your final item. This is um an antique fire truck pedal car from Placerville. Ooh. It is aged well. It is red. It still has its fire engine red. I would say this is probably maybe seventy years old. It has like a little bell in the front with fake headlights. It looks kind of like an old boxcar. Remember boxcars, guys? Yeah, it looks like an old boxcar with pedals. And in the back, it has um, like a fake hose that's Dang, wrapped so you can unwrap it. That sounds awesome. It has ladders on either side. So I, I, I'm, yeah. What do you think? Mm. You so the, the paint on it like is this? original paint, but it still looks pretty good. It's original. It's original. There's some weather. Some weather I'd say some yeah. weather issues. Okay. Yeah, but it. But um, still got its I wheels. It, yeah, one seventy-five. I have to get on the scoreboard. Two hundred. What you got, Jeff? I'm gonna go with three hundred. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so we had two hundred. Three hundred. Three hundred. What was yours, Alan? One. What did I say? One seventy five. I think it's at one seventy five. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I'm going to go with two hundred and one. You can be the proud oh. owner of this antique fire truck pedal car for four hundred dollars. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. Jeff, that's Jeff, for Jeff real. Got it. Yep. How come everyone got a point but me? I was going to go three hundred one, <laughs> but you should have. I, I saw I you thinking, thinking about, about it. it. Yeah. Dang it. Well, you all are Craigslist champions. I hope you appreciate your fame. This was, was a fun. fun one. This was a really good yeah, one. Yeah, that's a cool that's a cool game. Well, that'll that'll do it for us this week. Uh if you want if you're interested in any of these items, we will put them in the show notes. Uh if you found value in the show and like to support us, check out our page at renacast.com slash support and there you'll find all the ways you can support the show, including a, a PayPal link, Amazon, and check out our new merch. And don't forget to subscribe to the show, never missing an episode. We're available on all major podcasting platforms. And while you're there, if the platform allows it, leave us a rating and or review. We're always looking for more and more ways to hear from you. Show us some love. Yes. Show us some love. So for this week, I'm Jeff. I'm Alan. I'm Bonnie. I'm Casey. This is Rajiv. Thanks for joining the conversation. 